1: And a very warm welcome back to
2: Solidarity Breakfast.
3: A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they
2: trade in is not wheat, they trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism.
4: I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by
5: corporations for corporations.
4: The Union forever defending our rights. Don't
3: listen to this program Solidarity Breakfast 7.30 to 9am Saturdays 3CR 8.55am Streaming and 3CR Digital Podcast or Audio on Demand And of course the website SolidarityBreakfast.org.au Solidarity
1: Forever
2: Sorry guys, we've been uh, getting, uh, we're having real problems uh, struggling with the uh, the automatic and uh, I guess we don't need to say that, but uh, we are here now. This is Annie and Kim. It wasn't operate error.
3: It's not my fault, computer it wasn't, says. No. Yeah, it wasn't my
2: fault, I promise. I can't solve it, it
3: wasn't my fault. It
2: wasn't my fault. Anyway, we're, this is Solidarity Breakfast and uh, Annie and...
3: Yes, and me Kim. Good morning everyone. Good
2: morning and uh, we've got a we've got a really quite an interesting program well, interesting to me anyway, because coming off uh the first up uh, half hour we're going to be uh, delving into uh, the source of neoliberalism and monetarism and the uh, the power that it has on the neck of governments and our lives. Uh, And this is from a speech that was given by uh, Bill Mitchell, who is the Emeritus Professor, is that how you say it? I don't know. Anyway, he's a (laughs) professor of economics from uh, Newcastle University. And uh, he's also the director of the Centre of Full Employment and Equity. Yes, full employment. He advocates... Yeah, that's right. He advocates full employment. Anyway, he's he does he did this great speech. He came down to the New International Bookshop uh, in about October last year, and it's been a while uh, since that speech. But the it hasn't uh, tarnished at all. And over the time, we'll play the uh, pieces from it. So this is the first part, and we'll play the rest over the next few weeks. After that, we're going to explore what's going on in the city with homelessness, with uh, the uh, representative from the Homeless Persons Union. Yep.
3: Yes, we're not going to be talking to Robert Doyle.
2: No. <laughs> no, we're not. And it's really focusing on the uh, a, a speak-out that they're going to have today. It's uh, on at 2pm outside the Melbourne Town Hall. They've decided that they're going to go and... Uh, Go there and uh, talk out and around the stop criminalising homelessness and com- it's a community speak out. Uh, what by law will the mayor introduce to address homelessness in the CBD? And that's what they want to know. It's they want to. They're being proactive. They want to bring to the community's attention that uh, the city of Melbourne is looking to criminalise homelessness uh, with its uh, a series of um, they want to keep it tidy in the city and uh, they want to make sure that people, uh, well, anyway, what solutions are there? They And so we're going to get some words from the uh, Homelessness Persons Union.
3: Instead of just reporting in the Herald Sun, because there's enough written about homeless people and you don't actually get to hear people speak about it themselves. That's exactly right. And uh, later on, after that, we're going
2: to do a report on the Women's March that we talked about last Saturday. There was uh, some... We've got some stuff from the people who were there, but also a rousing speech by journalist Van Badham. She did a tub-thumping speech around solidarity, which is worth sharing. You're on 3 R with Annie and Kim. And uh, let's... Uh, introduce you to the idea of uh, what is behind neoliberalism. We'll start off with Bill Mitchell straight away, since we've been rabbiting on.
6: So I thought today, because I'm an educator, I thought we would just begin with a little quiz. Because, uh, and you don't, and we won't, you just have to answer the question silently to yourself, and we'll just see how you all win. So the first question is the role of taxes is to provide finance for government spending. So, true or false? I don't want hands. We're not going to have any embarrassment here. So that's question one. The role of taxes is to provide funding for government spending. Question two. When the federal government wants to spend more than it raises in taxes, it has to borrow from the private sector. Okay, clear? True or false? I hope you're writing down your answers. <laughs> There's seven questions all told. If the Reserve Bank of Australia was just to give money to the federal government to spend, eventually there would be inflation and hyperinflation like in Zimbabwe. True or false? Question four. Persistent budget deficits, and inverted comments for reasons I'll later explain... Persistent budget deficits and accumulated public debt ultimately have to be paid back and via higher taxes, and that leaves a burden for our next generation. True or false? Question five. Running budget surpluses provides the government with savings that it requires to cope with the demands of an ageing population, for example, in the increasing health care needs. So running budget surpluses allows the Federal Government to save up money in which it can then meet the future demands of the increasing things like healthcare care services. True or false? But question six. Australia's AAA credit rating ensures the Government can issue debt at the lowest possible interest rates. True or false? Are are you actually writing down your answers there, sir? (laughs) Last question. Quiz was over, it's a short one. If the Australian government tries to run continuous budget deficits, then international investors will abandon the currency and the government will run out of money. True or false? Okay, so seven questions, true or false? Tally up your scores, and we won't have a show of hands. There was a... uh, I thought there'd be a slide available tonight, but there isn't. But here's uh, Daniel Dennett, who's a US philosopher, and he has a lovely quote. He says, There's simply no polite way to tell people that they've dedicated their lives to an illusion. So, time to count up your scores. If any of you answer true to any one of those questions, then you've got various degrees of neoliberal infestation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Karl Marx said, "We do with the muck of our ages. Yeah. <laughs> If any of you said that the answer true to any of those questions, then you have been imbued with neoliberal mythology. All the answers are false. This is the, what, I'm, what I'm going to talk about for the next, I don't know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, something like that, is uh, the, the topic of my latest research. On, that I, it'll come out in a book fairly soon. And what's been interesting... My last book was about the... uh, It was called Eurozone Dystopia. Groupthink and denial on a grand scale. And if you study the European situation, you'll realise that a lot of the austerity is being inflicted by socialist parties. And for us who have got our grounds in this country, The austerity in the neoliberal mantra began with Clyde Cameron in the latter years of the Whitlam government. Clyde Cameron was the person who coined the term Dole budget." by the way. Hawke and Keating then refined that neoliberalism as Lange and, uh, who was his treasurer, Douglas, over in New Zealand were doing the same thing, preparing the ground for Costello here and Ruth and Asia in New Zealand. Ruth Richardson was the national party treasurer who succeeded Roger Douglas. These were parties, that, political parties and movements that had grown out of the trade union movements, for God's sake. In Europe, these are the socialist parties, the grand socialist parties. And so the the question then I decided to write the next book about, which will come out later this year, nearly finished, was how the hell is it that the spearheads or the vanguards, to use a nice Marxist term, Leninist actually, but how come that the spearheads of the of austerity and the and operationalising neoliberalism are uh, political movements that grew out of socialism and the need to defend workers' rights against capital. How come? So that's, that's the topic of the talk tonight, and that's my latest research, and the book will come out later. And there's a number of elements that, we, that uh, are necessary to understand. The first thing is that there, were, there was a momentous event in nine, August 1971, and most people, certainly most economists, have never really admitted, even if they knew what the significance of this event was. And that event was that the Bretton Woods fixed exchange rate system, which was agreed in 1944 at a major conference of the Allied nations, even while the Second World War was still going, to it was a it was a way of uh, of addressing the financial chaos during the Great Depression, the war interrupted the discussions. But after the war, as the war was coming to end, I mean Hitler was compromised on all fronts by 9, by 1944, and it was a, this conference was a, an attempt to build an international financial framework for st- for financial stability across currencies. And so they fixed their exchange rates together against against the US dollar and then the US dollar was fixed in value against the gold and they believed that would be stable because gold had a stable price and there were no new discoveries at that stage. And the problem was, and I'm not going to give a talk on the Bretton Woods system, but it collapsed in 1971. Throughout the 60s, it proved untenable because what it meant was that uh, basically central banks stood ready to buy and sell their currencies to maintain the agreed values. And the problem was that you had, and it's a similar problem to what you have got now in Europe, with Germany being a manufacturing and export stronghold, and the other Eurozone nations being uh, basically uh, external deficit countries. But in the 60s, it was the same thing. You had Germany as a manufacturing stronghold, and you had France and, it- and Italy and UK uh, running current account deficits, importing more than they are exporting. And they are always under pressure because when you're running current account deficits, there's down pressure on your exchange rate. And the central bank then has to push up interest rates to attract capital in to buy your currency and invest it locally. And also the, uh, the national governments have to suppress... Uh, income growth in our economy to suppress imports as a way of trying to stop the destabilisation of the currency. And, of course, what that meant was that any any deficit countries, external deficit countries, were always running up into a a recessionary bias because they were always having to run elevated interest rates and cut government spending. And, of course, that was politically untenable as a stable... Long-term solution. Eventually, the Bretton Woods system collapsed in 1979 August, and that was when President Nixon abandoned the convertibility to the US dollar. This was a this was a major event because what it meant was that national governments that issued their own currency were no longer dependent upon private bond markets for finance. And I'll come back to that later. The, the next part of the story is understanding the concept of globalisation. The progressive narrative attacks globalisation and they think it's, uh, you know, the the story is that this is a a global capital that has uh, transcended national geographical boundaries and rendered the state impotent and if we want a non-gender-specific descriptor, rendered the states powerless. And so the the progressives have been sucked into this argument that the the national state, the currency-issuing state, has been rendered powerless by big global capital. And so we have to have big international organisations rather than national organisations. And... If you are familiar with the whole literature that I'm thinking about there, you'll see, you'll get suddenly realised, if you think about it, that what the progressive narrative has actually conflated is globalisation with neoliberalism. Because really, globalisation is really just global supply chains. And more freedom of capital movement. That's not neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is a separate, is an ideology. And by conflating them and confusing them and thinking that they're the same thing is a gross error that's led to the left making fundamental mistakes in terms of their dialogue. The other big thing that happened in the early 70s was the rise of monetarism. And this came out of the American Academy, the Chicago Economics Department in particular, Milton Friedman, and was a major attack on the concept of the state as a as as, a, as an active intervention agent to maintain full employment. It was a major attack on the idea that the that you should have a mixed economy, where the state adopted a counter-stabilisation function. That means stabilised the the economic cycle. When the private sector cycle was weak, the government would step in with increased fiscal deficits to create the spending capacity to keep the jobs going. That was the Keynesian consensus, more or less, through the post-war period up until this period in the early 70s. And so what monetarism did was start infesting central banks. There's a very famous uh, uh, document in 1971, the Power Manifesto, if any of you are familiar with this. This was a, an American industrialist. There was a profit squeeze going on because social democracies had, had created a mediated situation where workers were going to participate in productivity growth. And by definition, the capitalists constructed that as a profit squeeze. I called it equity, but that's a separate issue. And this, the, the power manifesto was a, a major statement by an American industrialist who said that we have to get organised, that capital has to get organised. And you should go back, and, if you're interested, go back and Google it and read it, because it's a fantastically... It's a brilliant strategic document. It, it was the right-wing counter-attack against Keynesian policy-making and uh, and equity and full employment. And it was the way in which uh, capital was going to destroy the trade unions and grab more of national income for themselves, shift the the share of national income back to profits.
0: Hi, Maren and you're listening to 3CR.
2: Yes, you are, and it's Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. It's just extraordinary, isn't it?
3: It is, and how did you go with the little test at the start? You didn't, <laughs> you didn't answer true to any of them, did oh,
2: you? Oh, that's right. And the thing about it is, is that uh, this is just the introduction to his speech. This is Bill uh, Mitchell. He's a professor of economics at Newcastle University, and he's also the director of the Centre of Full Employment and Equity, He's he's not interested in just employment, full employment. But it's fantastic to be able to get this overview of uh, key milestones. And if you're looking for the Powell doc, uh, doctrine that he's talking about, treatise, it's P O W E W L. And yes, just Google it. And it's not even a long article. But we'll put a link on uh, our uh, page, uh, our website. Uh, Podcast for you to get a direct intro into it. Uh, anyway, we'll continue with the next part of Bill's uh, introduction to this in, in incredibly important understanding of where we
3: are right now. Myth busting neoliberalism
2: and the power
6: doctrine. The manifesto had a number. It was multi dimensioned They said that they had to. Uh, they had to create uh, well-funded think tanks. And this is when the think tanks emerged in America and elsewhere. This is when the Centre of Independent Studies in Sydney emerged. This is when the HR Nichols Society in Melbourne emerged in, this, in that period. We, have, we had to infiltrate the educational system. And we had to infiltrate the media. And in American context, because it was an American document, he, uh, Powell, said that Uh, the right had to also gain leverage over the Supreme Court. And it wasn't too long after Powell published that, he was appointed by Nixon to the Supreme Court (laughs) and became one of the most uh, uh, anti-citizen judge, pro-capital judge in his decisions, and that's historical. The point I'm making here is that the right wing, by the 60s and the early 70s, globalisation was in full swing. The Americans were taking over European capitalism with subsidiaries and big plants and manufacturing. I mean, the French hated it. But globalisation and, of supply change and of, of financial flows was was, was was already in big swing. What the right wing knew Power Manifesto was an explicit demonstration of this. What the right wing knew was that they had to commandeer the state. They knew that the national currency-issuing governments in each country were all-powerful. They knew the power of legislation. They knew that if the national government didn't want something to happen, it wouldn't happen. And so they were really clever. They worked out how to lobby and build think tanks and fund various movements to take over the state and to convert the state from a mediator between the capital-labour conflict into a, a supporter of capital, tilt the balance of policy towards capital. So the right wing never formed the hypothesis that globalisation had rendered the state ineffective or powerless. The state's never been powerless. It's got all the power. But the right knew how to manipulate that power and take the state over for their own purposes. At the same time, while the right were getting organised with their think tanks and their media and their takeover of of the newspapers and the TV stations and all of these other things that were, were building a network of influence to control the state. What did the left do at that stage? Well, some of us in the room will remember. The left thought that they knew what was going on. They started to rave on about the so-called fiscal crisis of the state. I mean, there was a book by James O'Connor, The Fiscal Crisis of the State claiming that the state had no money anymore because unless they went along with what capital wanted, the bond markets would, would sell out the currency and they'd run out of money. The left completely dropped, dropped the ball. The right knew what was going on. They were getting organised and they were, they were commandeering the state. The left were abandoning the concept of the state and talking about international socialism, for God's sake. And they, the, the left were the ones that first of all pioneered this, this notion that the international capital had rendered state borders irrelevant. Not the right. The right knew all along to emphasise state borders were incredibly relevant because they were currency issuing borders. And if it wanted to get its own way, they had to work through the legislative process. <coughs> And if you... Then, at the same time, 1973, October, there was the first of the OPEC oil shocks. This was the... This was the related to, initially, with Israeli-Arab conflict and the Yom Kippur War and uh, then, you know, the, the retaliation from the oil-producing uh, cartel to push up prices and uh, create embargoes and all of that. And... and That inflation that emerged out of the oil price rises, remember back in Australia we had, what, 17% inflation in in around that period because of our dependence on oil, imported oil at the time. Well, what the monetarists who were by now had infested the central banks, had infested finance and treasury departments, and uh, con- were increasingly controlling the media, the Financial Times and Australian Financial Review, these type of uh, daily interactions with citizens. What they were, were... The line they ran was that, see, we told you all along there'd be inflation because of these, canes, these awful Keynesian policies. See, Keynesian economics has failed. The proof's in the pudding. We've had this inflation, whereas... Whereas all that was, was a, what we call a supply-side shock. Where, where, of course, you're going to get inflation for a, a period if a raw material that you're dependent upon doubles in price. It was a temporary, a temporary shock to the order and it just needed some adjustment time. It was not the demise of Keynesian economics at all, but it was used very skillfully through this network of influence that I described earlier to convince everybody that was the case. And if you then start tracing the governments that fell for this monetarist, neoliberal narrative, it's not Maggie Thatcher was the first monetarist government. It was the Harold Wilson, Jim Jim Callaghan government in 1974-75 in, in, in Britain that became the first monetarist government. And not long after that, Raymond Barr plan in France was a monetarist government. But the British Labour Party were the first ones to articulate all this stuff about if we don't borrow from the IMF, we're going to run out of money and because the bond markets will sell us down the drain, and all of this stuff. Well, how could the British government, which issued the pound, the sterling, run out of money, for God's sake? It was a monopoly issue, nobody else issues pounds. How could it ever run out of money? But they fell for the trap. They fell for the neoliberal ideology and the myth. It was a Labor government and and Callaghan really just prepared the ground for Thatcher. Thatcher wasn't the first monarchist government at all. She was probably the most pernicious, but she wasn't the one who who brought these into into the public sphere as a government. And if you think back to the last budget statement in 1975 of the the Whitlam government, by then Cairns had been uh, trashed, and Hayden had taken over as treasurer. Cameron was the Minister for Employment. That's when he said that... Cameron was the one who said that, you know, unemployment at that time started to rise. That was the first time unemployment had risen in the post-war period to 4 or 5%. And Cameron started to... Clyde Cameron, the so-called defender of the workers, started to articulate stories that, oh, these people are just skivers. They're not looking hard enough. Dole bludgers—that was his term—and if you go back and look at the uh, budget papers of that year '75, it was the first time in the post-war period that an Australian government had actually started to articulate this idea that fiscal deficits are bad and we've got to start running surpluses. It was an Australian Labor Party that did that, not 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 the, the not not the Tories. And, of course, it got worse. Paul Keating, Mitterrand's famous austerity turn. I mean, Francois Mitterrand, a socialist president of France, had his so-called, in 1983, had his austerity turn, it was called, where he basically abandoned nationalisation, abandoned public uh, support for employment and was the first European austerity government. just got worse after that. And, and so, you, you think about that brief historical encounter and you'll realise that it's the socialist parties, the left parties, that bought the neoliberal line and got completely confused, thinking that globalisation was neoliberalism. Well, no, it's not. You could, you could abandon neoliberal policies at a national level and still enjoy the benefits of globalisation. This is globalisation on an iPad. My phone is globalisation. Being able to travel freely is globalisation. The internet is globalisation. Social media is globalisation. These are all positive things in our lives and can be used for incredibly progressive purposes and is, is quite separate from neoliberalism, which is a, you know, the free market ideology, even though it's got nothing to do with free markets at all.
4: I don't
2: want you at home anymore I want to go to work so I don't have to be poor How cute's that? And we were listening to Bill Mitchell, who's the Professor of Economics from Newcastle University. That's the first instalment of his speech. We'll get more next week. But online now, we've got Kelly Whitmore, who's from the... Homeless Persons Union. Hello, Kelly. How are you? Hi,
5: Annie. I'm joined with Spike as well.
2: Oh, great! Fantastic. I didn't know if we were going to get
3: the double act. Fantastic. <laughs>
5: Good morning, <laughs> Kelly and
3: Spike. It's uh, Kim. Good morning. Hi. Kim. How are
5: you
1: going?
3: Good. Thank you. Who was
1: that band?
3: Oh, they're the called last... they're called
2: Joy Bell and the and I can't read the next bit. That's why I didn't announce it. Joy Bell and that was the,
1: fantastic,
2: wasn't it? Toe tapping. Yeah, yeah, toe-tapping, wonderful stuff. Yeah. And because uh, at uh, 3CR, we've got a section that's devoted to uh, uh, music coming out of the disability uh, uh, group of people. And uh, I, uh, ever since I did a program about, uh, you know, focused on disability issues, I listened to a whole range of their bands, and I thought, oh, my God, they're so good. They're so poppy.
1: They're
2: great. Yeah. Great lyrics. Great lyrics. Anyway, we're let's focus on what we're here to yeah. do. Today you're going to have a, uh, a, a speak-out, a Stop Criminalising Homelessness, a community speak-out at 2 o'clock outside the Melbourne Town Hall. But there's a lot of backstory to this, isn't there?
5: Yeah. Yes, there is.
2: So uh, tell us what's going on.
5: Well, um, um, maybe listeners have heard, but the most recent thing is that the government has now finally come out of the woodwork and offered, I think it's a $9.1 million announcement yesterday to house, um, we think it's 40 um, individuals sleeping rough in the CBD. They're going to be offered um, immediate transitional housing and by the end of the year, 30 um, demountable um, single-person places will become available for them on... um, uh what is it uh Ballarat Parks road. Victoria. yeah Ballarat road is that the foot's grey yeah. That... yeah yeah um yes but one of the questions we'll be asking today is what's going to happen to the um you know 200 odd other people that are left sleeping in the cbd where is their where is their pathway to a better life and future
3: That's a very good question. I wanted to ask you, Kelly and Spike, because I think I've heard a lot of nonsense explanations or basically guesswork in the Herald Sun. Why is it that there appears to be an increase in people sleeping rough in the CBD?
1: Uh, That is such a great question, and that's something that... um you know, the answer to that really paints a picture about what's happening in Melbourne. Since Mouse's death in 2014, I think, I believe, or late 2013...
2: Yeah, Mouse is the person who was stabbed to death Yeah, by...
1: underneath the bridge of Enterprise near the Enterprise Wall. Yeah. Since since his death, um, people uh, have had it up, uh, up to their necks and, and are tired of being vilified and demonised and had their names dragged through the gutter, through the mud, by these faith-based organisations. The mayor, who's incredibly politicised his role, um, uh, the police commissioner, um, uh, and, and Brenda Noddle especially, um, have, have dragged their names through the mud. Um, and they, what, what people have done is... Homelessness hasn't has increased. What it's become is more visible. And they've gone out of their way um, because people have decided that, that they don't want to be unsafe in town. It's not safe to be in town alone in an unlit area. So they've decided, what well, just in the city square to, and, and just like Flinders Street, they need access to public amenities. So there's toilets. There might even be showers somewhere, you know, like the bus. And they've actually even come out against the showers, some of these space-based organisations. They want the small organisations to go. And, it's, and, and so homelessness, hasn't, homelessness has always been huge, and, and some workers are suggesting that it's, about, it's more than 25,000. There's approximately 75,000, that the 25,000 is only a third. And the last street count, there was 247 people sleeping in the CBD, and that's the ones that they could find. So what we're seeing is people are, are tired of living in shame. they're saying that you know you know these, these when you have a look at the statistics of domestic violence, um, the unaffo- the unaffordability of housing, where do they think these people are going to sleep? the children of the families that they're from homes that are active domestic violence and where people can't afford rent, where do they think these people are going to live?
3: I'm you with know, you, Spike. And, that and, makes perfect human sense. And, I rem- and, and
1: for, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I mean, the media, like, as you said, the Herald Sun won't do their job. They refuse to join the DOS and they think we're idiots. They, they, they treat us with absolute contempt. And unless we stand up and say, hang on, we won't be treated like fools, um, they're going to continue to pull the wool over our eyes.
2: You know uh, that there, there like you say homelessness uh, has always been a a, a lot but uh, I mean that's a pretty dumb term but actually there are actual reasons for why a whole lot of other people who might not have been homeless are now homeless aren't they Look.
5: Yes well we know that um family violence has has been on the increase Um, housing affordability is a big issue because of policies like negative gearing and capital gains tax. What are some of the other reasons? Look, and
1: and look, there are offers, you know, crisis to come. If anyone has lived in crisis to come and a rooming house, and I I visit, you know, rooming houses um, quite regularly, these are the sort of offers that people are given by these faith-based organisation and organisations, and unfortunately, some services are forced to give people are forced to put people that want housing in these places where they're sharing a toilet, shower, and a kitchen with 18 other people, and paying $230 for the privilege. You know, they've got bed bugs, um, the doors won't close, some of them don't have fire alarms. Um, you know, young people like the ones in the city, in our industry, are going to be preyed upon. These are some of the reasons why there's more homelessness because people refuse to accept this subpar um, housing options,
3: well, and they've frightened.
1: got every right mm. to say no.
3: It's not really surprising given the figures that have just come out about housing affordability being the worst among the worst in the world, right up the top there in yep. the major cities. And a lot of the cheapest places to rent are basically like slums. I can't imagine what the rooming right. houses must be like.
1: They're horrible. And they are absolutely horrible. And, look, I lived in one for seven years, and they dragged two people out of there every year dead. And, you know... You still have nightmares about it, to be honest. You know, I visit them now, and 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 it's still quite uh, it's triggering. But people, it's, it's time. You know, it's important that people bear witness to what other people are going through. And they're and and, and we need to also point out that Centrelink benefits haven't gone up for twenty years. They're fifty percent below the poverty line, and they're kicking people off the DSP. Where how are people going to afford a decent place to live? As also, and they have complex needs. So to just to just go to the newspapers and have these thought bubbles and, and call them, um, you know, basically refer to them as stains that need to be cleansed is absolutely irresponsible and um, it's ridiculous and, and it's really important that we stand up and say something about it.
2: I actually think, I've overheard people talk about... Uh, uh, Australia has the best uh, social security system in the world, and these people are just uh, just uh, a problem rather. And the system system has no problem at all. We should, you know, we don't. I I think that Australians, as a general rule, have to catch up with the reality of what's going on in with our social security system, and it's equal, you know, social security versus welfare. You know, this idea that people are bludgers and that the society doesn't actually have any responsibility for its members. I think that's what's going on, actually.
1: Well, it's, a, it's an old, it's a, it's a, look, it's been happening for years in Australia. You know, we really talk a good game when it comes to social justice and human rights. But what we all say do incredibly well, and it's like a sport in this country, is blame the victim. We individualize the problem. You'll see the age, which is supposedly the better newspaper. They'll show a photo of one individual homeless person and describe their situation. The homelessness is a collective issue and has systemic causes. To just have a picture of one person without describing that that this is an issue that has systemic causes, again, is an act of irresponsible journalism. And again, we're, we're individualising the problem and and we blame the victim rather than have have a look at the way that we've set up our society and our community. It's just not good enough.
2: You're on Sol- Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. We're talking to Kelly and uh, Spike from the Homeless Persons Union about a speak-up, or well, actually about what's going on with homelessness and a uh, speak-up that's going to be on at 2pm outside the Melbourne Town Hall.
3: I think that this is connected as well to what we were talking about earlier about neoliberalism because where there's we're seeing the removal of any safety net and I think people should be quite aware that there really is not this huge veil between feeling comfortable and being homeless. Like, I think there's been an increase, for instance, in middle-aged women who have careers ending up being homeless because – not because of family violence, although obviously that's a huge issue, but because they break up with their partner, they've had casual jobs while they had children, and they've got no super. And that yep. is – So where do they go? I, I, do I've they actually
2: go? seen I have actually seen people like this on the street. Yeah, I have too. And they're sitting there looking up in the sky – as if what what to do, what to do. I mean, they don't expect to be there.
5: Yeah, we've had older women um, contact the union um, that are not sleeping in the CBD but are staying in their cars, you know, in outer suburban areas or down the Mornington Peninsula, you know, in their cars with all their belongings. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, um, street homelessness is only... Oh, a, a quite a small percentage of the homeless population. Most people are living in unregulated rooming houses, in caravan parks, you know, couch surfing for a time on relatives or friends' couches. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and
1: and 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 you, you talk about you know middle-aged women, middle-aged men, people who are finding themselves in their 50s and 60s having. Lost, you know, their families have broken up for whatever reason, and having to just rebuild their lives at a time when they should be able to sit back and enjoy, you know, we're even taking away, we're eroding the pension for these people, people that have worked, you know, incredibly hard for thirty, thirty odd years, and instead of, you know, and we want to give corporations a tax cut, and they're saying that that's important for our, for Australia to go forward. You know, it's just we really have got it wrong and it's time. And this is, that's why it's important. I mean, it's not just a HPU thing. It's important that the community comes out and says this enough is enough. You know, Robert Doyle just has to resign. He needs to go. He's politicised his role. He's incredibly politicised his role. His role is a ceremonial one, and he's come out and he's and he's turned because of his. He's probably um, really bitter about not becoming mayor. He's politicised his role. Sorry, uh, not becoming premier. He's politicised his role as mayor, and he's and he's become like uh, he's turned Melbourne into his personal feast.
3: And and the man's
1: out of control.
3: I remember uh, during. Occupy Melbourne, when people were having a peaceful protest, you know, what most ordinary people would describe as democracy, and he stood up there on the second story and called everyone rabble. You know, that's what he thinks of us. I also think that it's important to emphasize that homelessness is not an issue that happens to a particular minority of people, but it's actually everyone's issue. That's right. Um, as we were That's talking about. Right. And I think that this, to me, really impresses... It's not about charity. We want rights. And what rights That's do exactly you want?
5: exactly right. Yep.
3: Um, so what are you demanding?
5: today or in
3: general... <laughs> well, you could decide whatever you like,
2: in general. Tell us about no, in general think, and then yes. particular...
5: I think today we'll be calling for the resignation of um, Robert Doyle. He he has to go. The language that he uses, you know, when talking about homeless people covered in faeces, covered in urine and concerned about his workers giving... Um, Tricked with needles, you know. He's not willing. She's not willing to have a conversation about the need for safe injecting um, facilities you. in in Melbourne City. Uh, we'd also be calling to uh, um, you know abolish policies like negative gearing yep. and capital gains tax and for both federal and state governments to formulate and implement a proper plan as to how they're going to address the homelessness crisis. And and it's
1: also important to point, you know, people like Tony Nicholson came out yesterday and said he wants the small organisations that are providing blankets that support people that are on the street and food, he wants them out of the picture. He wants the the shell buses to go. So these other faith-based organisations who pay no tax, and let's remember, the people that are homeless, they pay GST every time they buy a packet of cigarettes, every time they buy a loaf of bread, every time they eat, every time they, they, they spend, they're on they're on benefits, they don't hoard their money, they're taxpayers and they're getting pushed around by these people who pay no tax because as you, you, you rightly pointed out, Kim, Neoliberalism. The, the, the federal and state governments have stepped back from their responsibility to the community and allowed these, um, uh, look, these Christian bloody cowboys, to decide what is in what is in the interest of the individual. And trying to outlaw laying down and sleeping on the street. If you're tired, how are they? And then holding a how's a community worker going to work with someone who's sleeping rough with holding a sanction over their head. If you don't move on, I'm going to call the police. If, if no, Sorry, if you don't accept what I'm offering you, I can call the police and have you moved on. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, they haven't thought this through at all.
2: You know, it's fascinating. And Oh, sorry.
1: That's okay, it's okay.
2: Oh, no, I was going to say, you know, this business about the uh, government stepping back from their responsibilities, this ties straight in with uh, public housing being uh, handed over to the private sector, uh, yep. as uh, for community what they call social housing which yep. leads the uh, public to believe that social housing equals public housing which it doesn't That's
1: right.
2: no they have no, no responsibility yeah
5: a really good um a descriptor that someone from Friends of Public Housing once gave me to understand that difference is that social housing is an umbrella term and within that you have community or public housing, it could be either. So you're dead right Annie, when government and newspapers use the term social housing, you know, it's not clear just what they are talking about. Is it community housing or is it public housing and yeah there were rumours going back a few weeks or a couple of months ago that the Minister Foley, the um, Minister for Housing was going to announce something like a seventy percent sale off of public housing to the community housing sector well you know they weren't up, no
2: no no they weren't going to say what they were going to do was pass over the uh, uh the ownership of those the properties title. the titles to yeah. these properties yeah. because they wanted a disassociate they want this business this wonderful plan of you know government private. P P P. P, Working together, except of course the public lose out. We don't. It's not. uh, And and people who are in public housing, people have to be accepted in public housing. In social housing, they you have to jump hoops. They can cherry pick. They can cherry pick, and they can decide that. And they say stupid things like, oh, we're we're going to. And this is the thing that sells people's conscience. You know, you only have to pay 40% of your income to be allowed to live in this place. But of course, you have to receive a certain level of income so that the 40% rule fits. Now, if you don't, if you only have $12,000 a year, you don't fit.
1: And and, and let's remember, these houses were owned by the public. Exactly. They've already been paid for with public money that wasn't conjured. It's come out of um, consolidated revenue, money that's come out of people's – every time people pay tax. And, again, I'm going to go on about the media just refuses to do their job and has become a mouthpiece for the ruling class, bloody bloated – Hegemons down at fucking Sprint Street, and again, if, if pe- I just hope people come out today and and express how they feel, and I hope people are prepared to talk about how they feel, because as, not, as well as the mayor and those face based organisers, minister, what's his face, Foley needs to go as well.
3: You yeah, know,
1: because he's he's had a field day to kick kicking these people.
3: Absolutely, and I think that one thing that. People don't realise there's Scott Morrison off in London talking about housing affordability and how if we get rid of negative gearing, rents are going to go through the roof like he cares, which is not true. We can put that in with one of the neoliberal myths, I think. But actually, public housing lowers rents. So people, instead of demonising people in public housing, we should be building more public housing because it brings down the price of rent all over the private sector.
2: Yeah, the private sector's That's not right. going to save us. No way.
1: <laughs> no way. But it's difficult when you have, when, when you know, news... And I know uh, we went to a, a demonstration at the front of the Herald, Herald and Weekly Times the other day, and there were people saying, and quite rightly, that, you know, Rupert Murdoch's news, news corps, newspapers have become a mouthpiece, and they've been running a campaign against public housing for, you know... A very long time, at least from what I can remember, the last three or four years. I remember seeing a story saying that 12 people were clogging up the entire public housing system. How that happens, I don't know. But the age is also to blame because they again they refuse to do the research and explain to people the difference between social housing and public housing, the different you know what crisis accommodation is. What rooming houses are? What these people are being offered, um, and and won't go into that about even even the Australian industry group have said that the doll should go up by fifty dollars. You know, even you know sort of Nazis like those guys, they reckon the doll should go up, but the newspapers refuse to 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 deal, they're the fourth estate and for us to make to be able to make an informed decision, they need to provide that information and they refuse to so we need to you know disseminate information ourselves through these public gatherings
2: Thanks you guys for getting up and having a yarn with us today and uh, we'll, be, we'll go down there and, and collect information from what people say so be part of it, go down to Melbourne Town Hall 2pm today Uh, to the Stop Criminalising Homelessness uh, community speak out. Thanks, Spike and
4: Kelly. Thank you, Thanks very
1: very much. much. Thank you. You guys have been fantastic. Thanks, Kim. Cheers.
2: Cheers.
7: Bye-bye.
2: So the police have taken somebody from here from the camp?
7: Um, Yeah, he was being a bit of a silly bloke, you know, just making Making noise and that and, yeah, starting the police and that, so, yeah. They're going to take him to the drunk tank.
2: <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> okay. But is, it's not about uh, removing you guys in general?
7: Um, no, I think they're trying to work at that. That's why they've taken property that was just left there. and Like, even my stuff, that was sitting there. And because I wasn't with it, they took it. So, yeah.
2: so it's chip, chip, chipping away?
7: Oh, doesn't matter. Like, yeah, It's still alive, so, you know, doesn't matter.
2: So, I mean, where would you go? I mean, they're talking about uh, move-on laws, you know, making it illegal to to sleep rough, but where would you go? How can you make a law like that?
7: Well, unless you've got mates that'll take you in, you know what I mean, let you stay there, or family or something. You know, you, if you got nothing, you're fucked. Um, why,
2: why have you come to stay here? You know, because it's very public, isn't it?
7: Um... I feel safer here than some of the suburbs, yeah, and um, we've all got to know each other and more mates and that, so I guess that's part of it, yeah.
2: There's been some demonstrations, or there's going to be another one on Saturday, in support of uh, you guys, and uh, saying that it's not on to uh, make laws like this. Have you got any reaction to that?
7: Um, nah, I'm not gonna not going have anything to say with that. Like, the law is what it is, you know. Like,
2: well, well what do you hope will happen for you?
7: Well, I hope we get more rights and um, more of a chance that, like, you know, like, just. But there, there needs to be more housing, like, service, more, not so much housing services, like the the, wait, the waiting list, like 10 years for a Ministry of Housing, shit like that, that's just, it's unbelievable. And like, yeah, it's just too hard, you know, like.
2: Are you, uh, is it a bit more uh, frightening now that the police are doing things like uh, moving a person on like this?
7: Oh, uh, not really. If you cooperate, then yeah, I guess it'll be alright, but yeah, you know, like I, I don't I can't really say much about it, like yeah.
2: How did you get to be homeless?
7: Um, oh my house burnt down. Oh. Yeah.
2: So it's for seven months and you couldn't find anywhere
7: else? Um, no. Nah. That's been a situation since then. Yeah. You're trying to figure it out. Um, yeah, I guess you could say that, but... Like, like.
1: This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. And
6: everything can change.
1: So I'm thinking about the position that we're living or how we're in submission and living in a bin. Cause I live in the West, the poorest test. We need president just like Masadek, but forget all that equality. Try to understand living as minority with the majority is too racist and they too honest. be at my placement, making me feel like monopoly and it's robbery. How they acting, creating legislations to back up their actions. When we pay our taxes, they only use a fraction They go to infrastructure to show something happened but in reality what they are telling me is a ghost of society don't be lying to me i know you're flying free out the seas out the country when
2: you give well that was neat wasn't it that's mm. cool. yeah it's called system and it's by miracle m i r a k l e You're on uh, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. And uh, that was pretty rollicking, the discussion with uh, Spike and Kelly from the Homeless Persons Union about the speak-out that's going to be on at 2pm Melbourne Town Hall calling for the resignation of Robert Doyle. Yes.
3: Terrifying man.
2: Terrifying man. Stop criminalising homelessness, a community speak-out. We're going to now move on to there's been two spectacular demonstrations since the last program. One was last Saturday, the Women's March, which was really big, very, very big. And uh, so big, I don't know if this means anything to you, but at one point I decided once they did the speeches, uh, the gathering in front of the uh, library and uh, the State Library, which filled the entire place and then they had speeches and they then did a march but it was the day after the appalling events in uh, the uh um Burke street mall where the man drove down and killed five people just appalling stuff that was on the friday so on saturday uh it was uh uh you know the police were all pretty they weren't they were pretty shaken if not everybody else uh so uh the march went uh, up uh uh, didn't go that far down, it went straight up to uh, got you know, I think it was Lonsdale or Latrobe that they walked up to the um, parliament. But I stood and photographed, uh, videoed them walking, and it was such a long march, it was at, uh, 12 minutes of walking uh, mm. of people, you know, from the time I started to video. That's a long march.
3: I heard the figure 5,000, but it sounds like it might have been. Well More, or it picked up people on the way I think that that can happen yeah,
2: it could be it could be, and so we've got a, a some material from that uh, from that day we've got some vox pop and we've also got some you know people talking about why they were there and why it was important because remember that was the day that uh Trump was inaugurated in america mm. and it's and it describes why people decided that it was really important to come to the steps and uh, show their dissent with this, what is considered to be a push towards the right. And it's quite dangerous. Did you see the thing last night where scientists have decided that we're two and a half minutes to the destruction of the world and we've gone closer to that uh, destruction because of the uh, Trump becoming US president?
3: Oh, I see. So it's sort of like a big countdown clock.
2: Yeah. Hmm.
3: Two and a half the death minutes. clock, we're closer hmm. to the death clock That's exactly right
2: So they've decided, the scientists have decided They should visualise it for us all Anyway, by the by uh, So there's that But uh, also of course the um, survival day Invasion day uh, demonstrations on the 26th. Huge, were huge. huge, wonderful. What, Michael and I were down there. We did did a cross, of course. It was 3CR did a cross and uh, fabulous people at the station here, uh, led by Corey Green, uh, did a crosses right across the country uh so we we took up the first hour but then there was uh programming right to 4 lots of uh indigenous involvement of course because it was their day but um we Michael and I were down there at the uh, uh intersection of Flinders Street and uh we swear that there were 10,000 people because mm. you could hear it, 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 the people were right back in uh Burke Street that's how many and on each side you know like it was a it was
3: massive when you get to about ten thousand, you just can't see outside of the rally if you're in it that's yeah. what I noticed. I think well, that was it I was in I was one of the nurses' rallies that was around that size, and it's like, well, this could be ten thousand or hundred thousand I can't well i 'm pretty short though
2: well actually the big <laughs> the biggest rally i I remember was uh, for peace. Uh I, I was standing at it was in the eighties and I was standing up at the end of uh Burke Street look uh Collins Street looking down. I'd swear there was a hundred thousand people. The
3: biggest one I've been to was the Work Choices
2: rally. Yes, that was big. No, that was no, that peace rally was the biggest I've ever seen in Australia. Mm. Biggest. But sometimes you see them on uh Facebook and some of the countries of course there's more people. <laughs>
3: Yes, well, 2.5 million people in the US, not in one place, but, you know. Yeah, that was pretty impressive. That was big.
2: Anyway, we should get on because we're, we're, uh, I'll give you, uh, I went around and asked a variety of people why they turned up and you'll notice that there's quite a few Americans in the audience.
1: Join the global protest against Donald Trump, one o'clock here. Show your support with the Americans protesting against Trump from Washington to Seattle to San Francisco.
2: G'day, I'm from 3CR. Can I ask you what you're doing here?
3: Uh, Well, I think that if there's any time where it's important for people to get out on the streets and show that they oppose the current move towards the right and the rise of populism within the world, the time is now. If we don't actually get out there and let our voices be heard and object to the way human rights are being degraded, then they're just going to keep being trampled on. So this is my chance to get out there and make my voice heard.
2: G'day, I'm from 3CR. Can I ask you what you're doing here?
4: We we're sending out happy flowers because i um, not really happy with the Trump thing today for women in this world,
2: not just the United States. So, anyway, so happy flowers. Here's your happy flower, okay? You've got a banner here saying our bodies, our minds, our power.
5: Yes, um, part of it is because of the dismantling of the ACA when it comes to health care across the nation and the states, um, but also women's health care. I'm an advocate for supporting planned healthcare services and i don't think they should be limited to anyone um but also for environmental rights and um also just pussies against trump
2: (laughs) and so you're visiting australia
5: uh yes i am i'm uh yeah i've been here for about six months now
2: okay and so you got to vote
5: i did yes um i sent in my absentee ballot um which was really i was glad to be able to do that as well okay
2: well thank you very much you're
0: welcome oh thank you um
2: Well, I'm basically, I'm here for women and I'm here for the the LGBTQI community and I'm here for, I'm also scared about the arms race. I'm also scared about the gun lobby. Um, uh, I'm here for blacks, I'm here for Hispanics and I'm basically here against Trump. So that's why I'm here. Are you glad that there's an opportunity to actually express your opinion? Absolutely. Absolutely, because if, we, if people don't have the forum to express their opinions, then these people rise up. So we have to, we have, to have a voice. From 3CR? Yeah. So uh, would, you, would I be right in saying that you're a bit tired of having to come out in the streets and fight for basic human female rights?
8: Uh, I'm energised again. I think um, this is actually an opportunity to get back on the streets and be loud and proud and um, get some energy back. And I think, um, yes, this issue's been going on for so long, but we've got to keep doing it. So let's why, get it Why, why are
2: always women, women
8: being targeted, do you think? Well, I think um, LGBTI communities are targeted as well and um, um, immigrant populations. I think there's a whole lot of... Um, People who are not um, white male dominant, um, who are used to a superiority, um, there's a lot of people who um, need to be out on the streets and need to be heard and need a voice, and we need to claim that. We need to claim the
2: public realm for us. Can I ask you why you are here today?
7: Here today because um, you know we need to stand up and make sure people like Trump don't become leaders of the world, leaders of you know world leaders. Well, he already is. That's right. So we need to uh, tell the world that he's not welcome, right?
2: Right, Okay. What was that thing you said about Nazi Germany?
7: Yeah, that's right. If you didn't live through Nazi Germany, welcome to Trump, welcome to Trump. (laughs) I'm here to support the rights of women around the world, LGBTQ (laughs) community around the world, climate change, and um, just to have people have the power back to themselves. Are you visiting Australia? I currently live here. I'm an American, but I came here from Hong Kong.
2: Yeah, right. So are you a bit uh, disturbed by Donald Trump's rise to power?
7: I I won't lie, it's been a disappointment for me. Um, He's made comments about sexual assault that I think are completely inappropriate for any person, especially a person in power, to make publicly and to be brag and boastful about. So yeah, I have a huge problem with it.
2: Are you glad that there's been a demonstration today?
7: Yeah, I think it's so important uh, for people to stand up and have their voices be heard. Um, There's so many people that are marginalised, even here in Australia, that it's time. You know, it's time for us to take that opportunity. Yeah.
2: One of the event organisers... Sort of, yeah. Yeah, I'm from 3CR. I was wondering if you could tell me uh, what's motivated your decision to do this event.
0: Well, I'm a dual citizen, and I... um, noticed that Australia has been for a long time been a really, really peaceful multicultural place. Really tolerant, really accepting and I can see that it's starting the, tr- the all this stuff that's happening in the United States and elsewhere is starting to happen here hey, hey, hey. and uh, um, I'm working two, so that it uh,
6: doesn't.
2: Oh,
7: uh, Hey, good afternoon people. What is a disturbing occasion? He's not going
2: to stop. Uh,
0: I work here in an area where um, it's very multicultural and people love each other and work together and I don't want that to be eroded here and, like, it has been started to be eroded in the United States. So I feel really strongly that we always have a chance to bring things back to a good place. It's
2: interesting because uh, Trump seems to have uh, been able to ride a wave of... Gross popularity, you like it's like an advertising campaign rather than uh, a post, uh, proper policy uh, spectacle. Uh, disturbing.
0: He, yeah, it's really disturbing, I and mean, he, he's used all the things that have gotten people's attention in the United States over the years. Capitalism, he's used capitalism. He's used celebrity. Um, you know, the, in the. Being rich and famous is to, in America is like the, the pinnacle of success. And so this guy comes in, he's got both, and suddenly he's captured everyone's attention. It's like, I feel like it's a nightmare. I mean, I keep wait, waiting to wake up.
2: Um, you're playing the role of a street medic so yeah, at this demonstration.
0: A, a small collective of volunteers
8: who will provide first aid if needed.
2: And um, So are you expecting any problems? No. Just heat stroke no. maybe? Or?
8: Well vast majority of the time we have no problems, we don't open our kids, So no, we're not anticipating any problems, but
2: we'll be on the lookout if anybody's in distress, basically. Yeah, and so this is really just a well-organised demonstration? Yeah, it looks very well organised, yeah. And it was indeed. Yes, we're all in a bit of distress, though. Yeah, that's exactly right. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and uh, it, we're com- fast coming to the end of the program. And uh, before we leave the women's uh, rally that happened uh, in response to Trump being inaugurated, I've got to play you this piece. This was a great speech given by journalist Van Bandem- Badem. She did a tub-thumping speech and I don't know, I haven't listened back to it to see if it had the same I had the same sort of response as the day, but it was awe inspiring to the point that people would have gone gotten up and stormed parliament if they'd been asked.
4: <laughs> now for our final speaker, a woman who needs no introduction, a
3: powerful journalist who uses her words to fight and smash the capitalist and patriarchal world we're in. Van
4: Batem, everyone. Hello, Melbourne. My God, you cannot imagine how beautiful it is to be here and see how many of you are out there. Give yourselves a huge round of applause. What an inspiration to the other women around the world who are taking action on this dark, dark week. But from the outset, the most important acknowledgement of all, It is the honour and privilege of my life to stand here today speaking to you on Aboriginal land. I pay full respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and the Wurundjeri people of the Kuala Nation. Thank you for letting me be here today. I'd also like to acknowledge that it hasn't been an easy thing for a lot of us to come out today given the absolute tragedy that took place in our beautiful city yesterday. And I'm sure I'm one of many who are grieving for that senseless act of violence that hit our city like a wound to the face. And in respect for the families who are suffering an unimaginable grief today, I'd like everybody to take a couple of seconds of silence in acknowledgement of their pain. We have such an important task ahead. We have the struggle of our lives ahead. Ideas that we thought had been scourged from the mainstream many decades ago are back. They are back at the front and center of campaigns being waged across the world. Nationalism, self-interest, misogyny, structuralised racism, absolutely unabashed homophobia, an attack on the progressive, inclusive values of diversity that have brought peace and have brought harmony and have brought sanctuary to so many. We are in it for the fight of our goddamn lives and let us not pretend, let us not pretend that that fight is not taking place here. When the four One Nation Senators were elected last year, it was on about 4.5% of the vote. They are now outpolling the Greens. They are using the internet, organising structures, groups, talking to one another, misinformation, the propaganda of hate and division, and they are working like they never have before to build their platform and their influence. Let's acknowledge Let's acknowledge the shameful, shameful capitulation to the politics of Hansenism by Malcolm Turnbull this week. And the shameful capitulation to the politics of Hansenism by Colin Barnett in Western Australia this week. Religious persecution, picking on minorities, attacking women and on something so pathetic, so base and so controlling as the basic individual human right for women to decide what they can bloody wear. It is hateful, evil propaganda that is spread like a false spur of hope to people who are desperate. And unless we acknowledge why these ideas are taking root in the persuadable group of the Australian electorate, we are doomed to fail. We have to, have to acknowledge the scourge of casualisation, of insecure work a tax on minimum wage, an attacks on penalty rates, an attacks on workplace safety, an attacks on the right of people to go home to go to work in the reasonable expectation that they will come home again. <laughs> it's this insecurity, this fear, this economic destabilisation that makes large communities of isolated people who do not live in diverse communities perfect targets for hate. Perfect targets for a bit of xenophobia, perfect targets for blaming those feminists, those Muslims, those immigrants, those refugees, we hear it again and again and again, the only thing that changes is the name of the scapegoat. words like solidarity alike, like, but we have to live it. If you are a feminist and you are not a member of a union, you are not doing feminism properly. If you want to have a conversation with the working class, there's a really easy way to do it, and that's participate in it. Your workplace, your community, your church group, your political organisation, your student union, your neighbourhood and your goddamn family, these are where we will and must organise. We stand for something better in this country and that is a principle of egalitarianism. With the bloodshed and genocide of Indigenous people that this country is built on, we have a long way to go, my God. But if we know that, if we have in our hearts the recognition of that fundamental injustice, how the hell are we not fighting every injustice now? disadvantage that are so often silenced and invisibilised. We are a community that must see the participation of everybody accommodated. Accommodated fairly and accommodated structurally. Because if you want to understand what's going on in the United States of America, the absolute monstrous fear of that population, let's consider what it's like to live in a country like that that doesn't have award wages. Where minimum wage in some states is less than $3 an hour. Where there are no penalty rates, where casualisation is rife, where one in seven American families live in food poverty. Where if you are a First Nations woman, to earn what a white man does in a year, you'd have to do an extra nine months of work. Do not think that that can't happen here. And do not think that you are powerless by being here by speaking out, by showing up, by extending the hand to the person who needs your help. You are part of the difference. You are part of the response. You are part of the change. You being here today gives courage to women and everybody else across the world. That the motivated, the engaged, that we are not in silos. We are not elites. We are the boring, the ordinary, the plain. We are those who build the fabric of society from threads in a thousand different varieties and we will not have a supremacy take that away from us. Put your hands in the air. And I want you to chant for everybody in the world who is watching this today, one word. Solidarity. Solidarity.
3: Solidarity. solidarity 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 now moment it's time to hit the goddamn streets there you go we need to bring back oration as an art form I think yeah. it's fantastic it was. Yeah.
2: And they went down the street, as I said, it took a long time to get to the end of that <laughs> march. So that was, we leave the uh, Women's March last Saturday, big event, fantastic speech from Van Benham. I love that line, if you're a feminist and you're not a member of the union, you're not doing it properly. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And we're coming to the end of Solidarity Breakfast for this week. Uh, it's, who did we have? We had lots of We started,
3: uh We started off talk with Bill Mitchell talking about neoliberalism and the economics behind that. Yeah. And then thanks. we had a fantastic conversation with Kelly and Spike about what's really going on with homelessness and how you can fight it.
2: Yep, that's right. And they're having a speak out at Melbourne Town Hall, 2pm. That's today. Stop criminalising homelessness and community. It's a community speak out. Yeah, so you can go down there and be part of it. If you uh, don't go to that. You can also go down to Rod Quantock as Daniel Mannix, Assorted Trade War. It's uh, at St. Ambrose Hall, 3 Dawson Street, Brunswick.
3: Where it was 100 years ago. That's exactly right. <laughs>
2: Fantastic event. And as I said, Rod Quantock's going to give Daniel Mannix's speech uh, that was part of the campaign against uh, the uh, First World War and uh, also the uh, Uh, conscription uh, uh, plebiscite. Uh, Also, the afternoon begins with a performance of uh, Stephen Tabner's Ghosts Don't Lie, presented by the serenading Adela Choir, directed by Jeannie Marsh. They're featuring soloist uh, Lisa Marie Parker. The song was commissioned by, lots of letters, B-C-A-C-C-C, thanks to a a Moreland Council Community Grant. But anyway, it sounds like a good event. It's 2pm uh, to 3.30pm and it's at the St Ambrose Hall, 3 Dawson Street, Brunswick. Street, uh, Brunswick. Um, I'm going to go to the talk, speak out but you might want to go. Uh, both events would be great to go to. So there you go. Mm. And uh, we finished off with a my little report about the Women's March. Coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents but we're going to go out with a song by Heidi Everett called Another Day. See you later, Kim.
3: See ya.